A new industrial revolution, powered by millions of sustainable innovations, is essential and is indeed already beginning. Sir David Attenborough's opening speech at COP26 outlined the urgent need to invest in clean, green technologies to combat climate change and meet the world's future energy demands. Luckily, he's not alone. We need to move rapidly to the new technologies. Clean hydrogen, long-duration energy storage, nuclear. Heads of states want it. The time for words has now moved to the time for action. And the financial world is ready for it. Make no mistake, the money is here. But this is nothing new. The science, the agenda and the money is all pointing in the same direction. Now, it's the speed of deployment that matters. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock and we need to act now. I'm Tom Parker, and welcome to the Next Five podcast, brought to you by the FT Partner Studio. In this series, we ask industry experts about how their world will change in the next five years and the impact it will have on our day-to-day. In this episode, we're focusing on future energy technologies, specifically two different but promising climate solutions. And I'll be speaking to some of those driving this new industrial revolution and with it, the race to net zero. We could turn it on, we could turn it off, we could put it anywhere in the world. That's a game changer. Fusion is the energy process that occurs inside the stars. It's the process that occurs inside our sun. This is Bob Mungard, CEO of Commonwealth Fusion Systems, just one of the cutting-edge companies that are trying to commercialize fusion as an energy form. And in that process, it combines light elements to make heavier elements and releases tremendous amounts of energy, Uh, about 200 million times more energy per reaction than, say, burning something. And fusion, although we know it it works because we know how the stars work, we haven't yet harnessed it on Earth. But if we were able to do that, basically you know, build a miniature star on Earth, it would have immense benefits. That light element Bob talks about is hydrogen, one of the most abundant elements in our universe. If you took the, the type of hydrogen that's in seawater, which is one out of every 6,000 hydrogens, and you condensed it down, it would fit in about a glass of water, or maybe a little bigger, like a bottle. And that would power everything that a Western person, their entire sort of energy footprint for their entire life. And that's drastically different, about 200 million times different than the amount of coal you'd have to dig up to power that life. Every promising source is being explored. But ambitions to achieve fusion are nothing new. This is a clip from a U.S. agency report in 1978. In the complex field of nuclear reactions, with the promise of power that is truly limitless. So fusion has been seen as an attractive energy source basically since we discovered how the stars worked 100 years ago. People said, oh, well, if we could get that process um, on Earth, that would be a game changer. And fusion has a bunch of unique attributes. First, it's not consuming a resource. Almost all of our energy sources today are about a resource, whether that's what's underneath our feet or what shines on us or blows over us. Well, fusion, there's no resource. It comes out of seawater. Everyone has access to it. It does not matter where you are. No one can tell you not to do it. And instead, it's like a machine. 
it's also something that you can turn on and off and make a lot of power in a small space, which is different than renewables. If you know how to build this machine, you get energy. And that is like energy as a technology instead of energy as a resource. That's a big, powerful thing for not just climate change, but for you know, human development. Hydrogen also has a role to play elsewhere in a very different way by curbing emissions from hard-to-abate sectors that rely on carbon-heavy fuel sources. Kevin Eggers is a founding partner of AP Ventures, a dedicated venture capital fund that invests in early-stage technologies that work along every part of the hydrogen value chain. I think firstly, what makes hydrogen really interesting is its versatility and flexibility. In those sectors which are hard to electrify and hard to abate and, and reduce carbon emissions, hydrogen plays a really interesting role there through the direct reduction of iron ore, decarbonizing aviation, decarbonizes existing ammonia applications, such as fertilizer, or it can be used directly on pull a ship or a truck into a fuel cell to drive transportation. So I think hydrogen has a significant role to play in heavy duty transportation, including shipping and rail. And those sectors are very difficult to electrify. It couples well with renewable energy, wind and solar. And I think with that, the ability to ultimately transform those hard-to-abate sectors. But again, this is no new discussion. There is a new energy regime on the horizon. You can almost smell it. You can feel it. You can, it's, it's just there waiting. And it's hydrogen. That was American writer Jeremy Rifkin back in 2002. Speaking ahead of the launch of his book called The Hydrogen Economy, Rifkin prophesied hydrogen to be the next great economic revolution and the key to a cleaner, safer and more sustainable world. Indeed, the potential is there. Unlike fusion technology that is still in development, a commercial hydrogen industry already exists. In 2020, demand for hydrogen was roughly 90 megatons, and the industry as of 2021 is worth $125 billion. But are we close to a hydrogen economy today, as Rifkin predicted? We know we can produce it. We know there's a number of sectors that can consume it. But linking A and B is the fundamental challenge of the hydrogen economy. How do we get hydrogen from Morocco into Germany? How do we get hydrogen from the Middle East into Europe? And therefore solving that midstream is key. So we're looking at various forms of production, we are very interested in the midstream, including liquid organic hydrogen carriers, ammonia. In many respects, that's the, the missing link in the hydrogen economy. We think only solving this in the whole, looking at that holistic view, can you really bring about a hydrogen economy and, and thereby cause a sort of snowball effect to bring hydrogen into that mainstream. Conversations around how we fund the world's move to net zero have become more mainstream in recent years. In 2019, when the UK and Italy assumed the COP presidency, there was about $5 trillion of private financial assets committed to net zero goals. But just two years later, at COP26, Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance, declared a watershed moment. As you've heard today, over 450 major financial institutions from 45 countries are committing to manage their balance sheets, balance sheets that total over $130 trillion in line with net zero. So make no mistake, the money is here. Indeed, the money is here. Global investment in renewable energy projects and companies reached a record high in the first half of 2021, totaling $174 billion. 
I believe that private investment will play a considerable role. We starting at the technology end. I think that's interesting because these are tomorrow's technologies that we can invest in today. With the right incentives and motivation, I'm seeing increasing amount of capital coalescing around these early stage technologies with companies, investment funds coming around this belief that these technologies will play a major role in solving this energy transition. And with that, also an opportunity to make money. There's really no point in investing in technology that can't look after itself and ultimately create a return for its investors. So that's fundamental to any technology investment. And that's how we see it. We, are, we, we want to back technology that's going to play a meaningful role and can earn shareholders and outsiders return in that future. Without a doubt, I think hydrogen is really important in this energy mix going forward. This is Lisa Rabora, Senior Vice President of Emerging and Future Business at Equinor, a broad energy producer and provider that for 50 years has predominantly been involved in oil and gas exploration, but for the last 20 years has been a pioneer in floating offshore wind, carbon capture and storage and other renewable solutions. I'm really interested in the role of hydrogen together with renewables, either as backup and storage, offering flexibility to the renewable baseload when the wind doesn't blow and and the sun doesn't shine. Today, Equinor's Venture Fund has invested in both AP Ventures and Commonwealth Fusion Systems. We have our investment through the dedicated AP Venture, the Hydrogen Fund, And this is giving us great exposure and strategic insight to multiple startups, all working within the hydrogen space. So on the Equinor side, uh, we're working closely with our colleagues, working on the hydrogen projects and really trying to understand what their biggest challenges are as they're developing these projects. And then there's fusion. This is really an exciting technology. But I love the message around these startups and the whole private equity that's gone into fusion of late because you had these massive government projects that have been running for decades and they're looking at very big solutions that are complex. And, you know, where the startups are coming in is that very agile experimental mentality, failing fast, but consequently delivering something that could be scalable in the future. And for me, fusion is one of the most exciting technologies out there. And I think these breakthroughs we've seen in the the last year or so are because of the investment in the private sector and because of these smaller companies all working commonly towards commercialising fusion in the 2030s. But actually, it only matters if you can create an energy system from it and you can get it into the market and deploy this. Fusion is very exciting. It's very difficult to do. Breakthrough Energies put money into the MIT-related one called Commonwealth Fusion Systems. This is Bill Gates talking in 2019. That technologically is very, very difficult. No one has gotten to so-called energy break-even where you have to create 10 million degrees of temperature in order for this fusion to take place. And so to do that economically and get net power output is a huge scientific challenge. It definitely should be funded, but unlike fission, that's very straightforward engineering to build that next generation, doesn't require invention. Fusion requires a lot of invention. But that was nearly three years ago. Today, we're already a lot closer to solving the fusion challenge. 
and we're sitting here about a factor of two lower than where we needed to be. We've gone a factor of 13 zeros, 13 orders of magnitude since we started, but we're a factor of two away from that actual process creating more heat out than it took to heat it up. And that's the big hurdle that CFS is trying to get across. Money, of course, fuels a lot of things. But in addition to that, there's still plenty of innovation to do. We have a pretty good idea of what we could build today. The more we innovate, the better that's going to be. And if we can continue to build that flywheel of innovation, that's a really big deal. And that's more than just one company. That is other companies that might not be wanting to build fusion power plants, but might be a, a part of that ecosystem in the future. And so if we can continue to, to build innovation in, in those areas, whether that's materials that withstand the environment inside the fusion power plant, or subsystems that keep it cool and heat up the plasma, or maintenance scenarios that we find the right ways to be able to maintain these plants in an ecologically uh, as benign as possible way. Investor interest in fusion technology has been growing in recent years. 18 fusion startups received nearly $2 billion of private investment last year alone. ITER, a fusion project based in France, hailed as the world's most expensive science experiment ever, will be funded to the tune of $25 billion. But while capital is pouring in quicker than ever, accelerating deployment takes more than money. We know from the pandemic that the private sector can speed up timelines dramatically when everyone agrees on the urgency and the direction. So each sector needs a clear strategy to speed up the process of getting innovations to market. This need to accelerate and hit the climate goals means cutting down the learning time. And that's where collaboration comes in. Because we're building a machine, and that is something the world already knows how to do at scale. That's something that other industries, oil and gas and energy and aerospace, are very, very good at. We can learn from all of that. We don't have to reinvent all of that in order to make a fusion industry work, which is one of the reasons that we think it can go much faster than, say, starting over with a completely novel technology. At the end of the day, fusion is about building machines. They're specialized machines, but we build lots of machines globally. Developing new industrial value chains and technologies requires so much more than capital. And I strongly believe that when we start working together with these startups and, and bringing together those complementary skills, we can really accelerate the energy transition. So for Equinor, we're working really closely with CFS and in fact other early phase technologies, but we're bringing operational experience. We bring the whole concept of safety by design. And then there's the institutionalizing risk management in the development of projects. So not least, you know, when you put all these experts and competences together with decades of oil and gas production, with expertise in building clean offshore wind projects, you bring a synergy of skills together that can really accelerate the commercialization of these solutions. If I give you an example, there's applications from our LNG value chain. So cryogenic expertise, you know, where we're looking at how to cool and liquefy gas, that's very relevant in how to cool super high temperature magnets. And all of the funding and investment around material science and, and plasma physics, digital operation, that 
can really accelerate pace of deploying really exciting technologies like fusion. So the money is there and the industry collaboration is there. The last part is government support. 2020 was a record year for policy action in the hydrogen space, with 10 countries adopting hydrogen strategies with the aim of stimulating demand and de-risking investment. As of September 2021, four more countries, including the UK, inked hydrogen policies, and a further 20 announced they are developing theirs. However, without stronger policy action, a commercial low-carbon hydrogen economy won't arrive at the pace necessary to meet climate goals. Bringing more clean and affordable energy into the markets at an accelerated pace is going to be really important. We need to shorten the time it takes to deploy new solutions and technologies at scale if we're going to speed up the energy transition. As well as a political push and, and carbon price incentives. Currently, almost 80% of hydrogen is produced from fossil fuels, resulting in 900 megatons of CO2 per year. And this comes down to cost. Producing low-carbon or green hydrogen is pricier at present than fossil fuel-based hydrogen. Fortunately, some governments are looking to implement carbon pricing to close this gap and facilitate the adoption of low-carbon hydrogen. Anyway, back to Lisa. We need to invest in technology, in knowledge, and we have to build competence. And to do this efficiently and at lower costs and, and really drive this commercially is going to be crucial. Equinor is developing several major industrial hubs, hydrogen hubs with partners uh, across Northwest Europe, both in low carbon blue hydrogen and, and zero carbon green hydrogen. And they're going to require significant investment. This is large infrastructure where we're building new markets and, and new customers at the same time. And, and those customers don't exist today. So if we're going to do this rapidly, we absolutely need to work with industrial partners and, and governments together. The legislative agenda sets the tone, sets the commitments made by governments. And around that, businesses and investment institutions like ourselves can coalesce and put capital to work. So certainty on the future is critical. And never before have we seen industries asking to be legislated and, and governed and regulated as we're seeing now. And that's really interesting. I think we all recognize we're at this huge um, moment of transition in the energy systems and the energy markets. And companies are crying out for that, for that regulation. So that's the starting point. In 1979, President Carter installed solar panels on the roof of the White House. But just two years later, Ronald Reagan removed them. It was then 29 years before solar panels were back atop the roofs of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, this time under Obama's request. While this isn't policy, it reflects what happens when power changes at the top. And that's just one government. This is a global effort. Therefore, consistency is fundamental. So we need to work together closer than ever before to deliver on the climate targets. We need that regulatory framework and predictability around that if we're going to scale up investment and, and build businesses. It's important for the risks. It's important to incentivize investments, but it's also important for the customers. They are investing in these technologies themselves. 
So there's that dimension, which will be really important going forward. Then I think there's this global and regional context and, and how we can work across countries and borders and how governments can work together on everything from carbon pricing to infrastructure to the actual grid distribution and the connectivity across these borders. I mean, that's really going to allow affordable, reliable, clean energy at the end of the day. And this is not something that industries can do alone. We need governments. We need to work together on those. And I think this kind of collaboration is what's going to change the energy systems that we know today. We've come a long way already. In 2022, the amount of energy produced from renewables will account for half of the world's energy demand. By 2026, global renewable electricity capacity is forecast to match the current capacity of fossil fuels and nuclear combined. This is due to stronger government policies and ambitious clean energy goals announced before and during COP26. However, according to the International Energy Agency, we're still falling well short of what is required to meet net zero emissions by mid-century. The rate of growth in renewable power capacity must double by 2026 to meet that target, and renewable heat demand needs to be three times higher. So with that in mind, what needs to be done in the next five years? I think the next five to ten years are going to be absolutely critical. We are going to have to work extremely hard at scaling and growing these low-carbon solutions and renewables at quite a tremendous pace. The majority of governments and industries, they've all gone out and pledged and committed to cut emissions. So there's no doubt there's a great sense of urgency. But, you know, we know technology can be a long game. And if you look over history, energy transitions have taken decades. So it's really coming together to implement those technologies even faster that's going to make a difference. And I think we're going to see how new global energy systems develop. There's big challenges in power and transport, in hydrogen, you know, and CCS. And then there's the offsets, the natural carbon sinks, products like green fuels, alternative energies like nuclear. In fact, I think the whole energy mix has to emerge and scale in the next five to 10 years and become commercial. So we're going to need policy and incentives if we're really going to play out that broad mix of energy solutions. And then there's certainly new technologies, technologies that haven't even been invented today. And they're going to be important in the future. And alongside those, we've got to keep developing the technologies that are already in the marketplace, bring them into new markets and new geographies. That's what scaling is, is all about. And I think this portfolio of options, you know, assuming that not everything will succeed because it won't, playing a broad mix of solutions where you learn and adapt and you deploy and then you scale. So the faster we can get out this technology, the faster we can start to address the climate footprint. The next five years, for me, is going to be the most exciting and potentially the most volatile in the energy sector. But it's it's actually going to be the most rewarding time to be in this industry. 
we get to contribute to new solutions and we get to make a difference. I'm really looking forward to it. I think we, we're standing really on a you know once in a generation shift and the next two to three years of that five are going to be the most important. From our perspective, it's about investing in the technology advancements we need to see. And we're seeing a lot of capital chase the technology, which is fantastic. And then the next stage will be um, early deployments. So these are not just very small-scale deployments, but actually larger commercial-sized deployments that we can actually prove this technology. Sometimes the economics are going to be marginal, uh, perhaps even um, you know, no net economic case in the, in the first instance. But my hope is that we'll transition very quickly into the second, third, and fourth deployments. So I'm encouraged, but I do think you know, we need to see meaningful deployments of large hydrogen production, particularly green hydrogen production, being deployed in Europe, in the US, and to start meaningfully bring down the cost of that production. I think cost down is key, and I think we'll see cost down through increased technology advancements, but I, I believe we'll see cost down in the same manner that we've seen it take place in solar and wind. Let's take solar energy, for example. The first photovoltaic cell was invented in 1954. In 1958, solar energy was used in space to power satellites. But back in the mid-50s, solar panels cost $300 per watt, Today, it's less than 1% of that, and solar is now the cheapest electricity in history. It took a long time to reach that accolade, but perhaps Carter is laughing at Reagan now. Somebody needs to make a fusion machine that you push a button and you make a bunch of heat out of at net energy, at more power out from the, the plasma than it took to heat it up. And we're on track to be able to do that. In five years, we plan to have completed the machine we're currently constructing outside of Boston. You know, that machine should be a net energy machine, meaning the, the plasma produces more heat from fusion than it took to heat it up. And it should do that at many times more. And the scientific predictions are about 10 times more. And so that's a big, big deal. because It means you show up to a fusion facility that's built by a commercial entity interested in commercializing the technology. But that's a huge moment in, in human history. Fusion energy is the basis of almost all the energy on Earth already, whether that's fossil fuels or solar or wind. But imagine if we had direct control over the fundamental energy source that powers all of that, you know, at our fingertips. We could turn it on and we could turn it off. We could put it anywhere in the world. Uh, that's, a, that's a game changer. It took attitude changes, governmental subsidies, industry collaboration and investment to bring down the cost and normalise the uptake of wind, solar and other renewable solutions that now make up half of the current world energy demand. So for our next generation of solutions, like fusion and hydrogen, securing our green energy future has to go beyond capital. It will require more collaboration across government and industries between science and finance. And while this is happening already, it needs to happen quicker because we don't have another 70 years to figure it out. The speed of innovation, investment and deployment over the next five years is critical to success. But if we all recognise this and cooperation exists, there is hope. And our motivation should not be fear if, working apart, we are force powerful enough to destabilize our planet. Surely, working together, we are powerful enough to save it.
Well, that's it for this episode of The Next Five podcast. Many thanks to Lisa, Kevin and Bob for chatting with me today. And thank you to everybody for listening. For more information on the topics discussed and the sources used in the show, please check out the episode description. Take care and bye for now.